If you would, let's go to the small book of Philemon in the New Testament. As I said last week, just find your way to Hebrews and take a left. And just to give you some background on the book, that's always very important, but I feel like with a book like Philemon that's only 25 short verses, there's just not a whole lot of information given. And if you just kind of read it and you have no concept of what actually is going on, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense to you, but uh, Philemon was a wealthy Christian man who was an active member of the church at Colossae, and we're going to see that the church actually was meeting in the house of Philemon at the time that Paul wrote this, and Paul had apparently led Philemon to Christ years prior to the writing of this letter, and in the context of what's going on, Philemon had a slave by the name of Onesimus who had apparently stolen something from Philemon. We don't know how much, we don't know the value, but Paul seems to allude that he owed a debt to Philemon, that he had stolen something from him and then run away. And uh, it appears that Onesimus went to the prison where Paul was. This is one of the prison epistles. And Onesimus goes to the prison where Paul is, and it seems like he wanted Paul to act as some kind of a mediator between Onesimus and Philemon. It's kind of one of those things where I guess Onesimus fled and then he got to really thinking about what he did. Of course, uh, that would be a violation of Roman law, very serious penalties involved with that. And he thought to himself, well, what can I do? Well, I need to go to Paul. Him and Philemon are good friends and uh, I need to use him as a mediator. That seems to be the most likely scenario. And... What happens is, on this, in the, with this encounter between Onesimus and Paul, Onesimus actually comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so uh, Paul writes to Philemon and asks him not only to forgive Onesimus, but also to grant Onesimus his freedom. I, I didn't get into this last week because I wanted to focus on the issue of slavery itself. And uh, just to rehash, I spent a whole message last week talking about the Bible and the issue of slavery because a lot of people, a lot of critics uh, have read Philemon and places like it and come to the uh, incorrect conclusion uh, that the Bible condones slavery, especially the kind that we saw here uh, in Britain and in America. Uh, I clearly showed you from the Scriptures how Uh, the slave trade here in America would have been condemned by Scripture for at least three different reasons. The first one, that kind of slavery was based strictly almost according to race. God condemns that clearly. Uh, Also because of how the slave trade was conducted. Uh, The Bible is clearly against what is called man-stealing. In fact, we looked in the book of Exodus that said both Uh, the buyer and the seller of slaves would have been put to death by the law of God. Like I said, it's awful hard to buy and sell slaves when you're dead. So, yeah, that that really shoots it in the leg there. Uh, We see what God thinks about that. We also saw where it was condemned because of the way that the slaves were treated. And we looked at uh, the golden rule and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus said that. And uh, we saw the, the guidelines for Uh, people that did own slaves and understand that slavery in the Roman Empire was totally different than it was here in America. Uh, In fact, um, 
if you had a good master, you actually would have a good life. And if you wanted to, you could buy your freedom. And you did have legal rights. And certainly on the socioeconomic ladder, a slave would have been at the very bottom. And no doubt, many people probably would have been uh, wanted to be freed from that. Uh, but understand, it was not like the way it was here. So we can't be anachronistic when we read the Bible. And so we looked at that. I don't want to rehash that. But I just wanted that fresh in your minds as we go through this today. So Paul writes to Philemon, ask him not only to forgive Onesimus, but to grant Onesimus his freedom. Look at verse 16. He alludes to this. He says not, uh, talking about receiving Onesimus, he says not now as a servant or a slave, but above a servant, a, beloved, a brother beloved, specially to me, but how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And so this would, listen, this would no doubt send shockwaves through the community and the church of Colossae. Philemon would bring glory to Christ through not only his forgiveness of Onesimus, but also through his release of Onesimus. Uh, that would, I mean, can you imagine the conversation that would strike up in the community? That was unheard of. And yet, this is what he's asking uh, Philemon to do on behalf of Christ. And, you know, today, we want to look at the flip side of forgiveness. I told you that the theme of the book of Philemon is forgiveness. And most specifically, forgiveness among brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'll be honest, I don't want to preach this. I don't want to do this because... I'm not coming to you today and giving you some kind of abstract concept. I've been here. I know what I'm talking about. And there's nobody in this room who has not been affected by what we're going to talk about. There's probably people sitting in here this morning and listening online that are involved in this now, and you may not even realize it. That's the scary part. But we're going to look specifically at unforgiveness and bitterness, which those two things are inseparable. And specifically, I want to look at the high cost of unforgiveness, what it cost a person, and even what it cost a believer in Christ who is harboring unforgiveness and bitterness. Uh, let's go ahead and read our text this morning. I'm only going to get through the first seven verses, and actually, there was four things that I wanted to talk about this morning, but I'm going to have to split it up. We're going to talk about two this morning, and probably the other two next week, so as far as unforgiveness, we're going to deal with that today and next week more than likely. But let's, for the sake of context, we'll read the first seven verses here in the greeting. But it says in verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy our brother, unto Philemon our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Epiphia and Acrippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God, making mention of thee always in my prayers, hearing of thy love and faith which thou hast toward the Lord Jesus and toward all saints, that the communication of thy faith may become effectual by the acknowledging of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love, because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, brother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for being so good to us. Forgive us where we failed you. Uh, Lord, I have no idea uh, on any given Sunday or Wednesday what kind of burdens are sitting in the pews. I know some of them, but on the deepest level, only you and them really know. And God, I just pray that this morning that the message would find us where we're living, 
God, not where somebody else is, but right where we are. Lord, if there be any unforgiveness, Lord, if there be any bitterness or any other thing that might steal our joy uh, in you, I pray that you would reveal it and grant us repentance. Lord, just empty me of sin and self and fill me, Holy Spirit, that, Lord, that I wouldn't be seen, but Christ would be magnified, that you would hide me behind the cross and empty me of sin and self. And I just pray that your word would go forth with power and clarity. Uh, if there's one loss that you'd save them, God, if, there one, if there's one that is struggling with unforgiveness, maybe even unrealized unforgiveness, God, would you make that, uh, would you just reveal that, make that clear? It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. So we're looking at the high cost of unforgiveness this morning, but Briefly, before we get into unforgiveness, I just want to give a brief definition about forgiveness. We're going to talk about forgiveness more specifically later in this study, but I just wanted to give a, a brief definition. Uh, the word that we, the Greek word that we get forgiveness from, is aphiomi, aphiomi, and it means to send away, to release, kind of as, as a husband perhaps divorcing a wife. It can also mean to let go or abandon. Uh, it, it speaks of releasing someone from a debt that is owed. And, and I find it interesting that aphiomi is translated forgive 47 times in our Bible, but it's translated leave 52 times. And so this aphiomi is actually translated leave more than it is forgive. It, it is a releasing or a letting go. That's what forgiveness is. Uh, it's also interesting to me that it, this aphiomi is also translated to forsake six times and to let alone six times. I think you're getting the, the idea uh, behind this word. Uh, and the work of forgiveness can be hard. I'm sure you probably know that. And unfortunately, our society sees forgiveness as being weak. We, you know, we tend to glorify narcissists. Do you know that? I mean, think about most of the superhero movies and all of the, the icons and idols and celebrities that people just worship. Uh, we, we have an affection for narcissism in this country, but when it comes to things like forgiveness, uh, we view that as weak, and it really shouldn't be that way because the work of forgiveness is hard. Um, <clears throat> let's look at the terms that Paul uses to describe Philemon as far as now. This is really important, and we're going to try to make application here from our text. And obviously, in a letter this short, you have to do some deductive reasoning, and there is some assumptions made. I have, I'm not going to deny that, but I don't think it does damage to the Scripture here because without that, uh, without filling in those blanks at least a little bit from the things that Paul uh, maybe not directly says, but he implies that without doing that, it's, you're just going to miss some things. And when we talk about um, the person of Philemon, I think we can gain some insight into some possible unforgiveness. Let's look at these terms that Paul uses to describe Philemon in this introduction. He calls him our dearly beloved, uh, our fellow laborer. Um, he, he mentions his love two more times in verses 5 and verse 7. He talks about his love and faith for Christ Jesus and also toward all the saints. Uh, he talks about in verse 7, We have great joy and consolation in thy love because the bowels of the saints are refreshed by thee, our brother. 
And so he's, Philemon is obviously a man of compassion. He's a man of great love uh, toward both Christ and the believers. He's a blessing to his church. He uses his wealth and his resources uh, to bless others. We see specifically, as I mentioned, that they're meeting, the church is meeting in his house. And so when we read this, we have absolutely no reason at all to think that Philemon ever mistreated Onesimus. It would go against everything that we just read about the man. It goes against his very character. And I can promise you that Paul, having talked to Onesimus in person, that if Onesimus had even hinted at the idea that Philemon was somehow abusing him or treating him badly, Paul would have brought that out. Paul never had a problem mincing words, especially something that needed to be corrected. Go read 1 Corinthians sometimes. He has no problem doing that, and yet we don't see this in the text. We have no reason at all to assume that Onesimus was mistreated by Philemon. In fact, based on what we just read, with his love and charity toward Christ uh, and others, that he probably treated him very well, more like a son than a slave. And I want you to put yourself, you know, assuming this is true, and based on the implication here, I believe it is true, um, it's easy to see and understand if you put yourself in Philemon's shoes. He has this slave that he treats more like a son than a slave. He has essentially invited him into his household. He's taken care of his needs. He's probably done uh, above and beyond. Uh, And even when Paul asked him uh, to forgive Onesimus and take him in as a brother in Christ, look at what he says in verse 21. Paul says, "...having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also do more than I say." He says, I know your character. You're going to go above and beyond what I'm even asking you to do. And I have no doubt he did that with Onesimus. But Onesimus seems to have taken advantage of his goodness. He he has stolen from Philemon, and now he has run away. And, you know, it's just this is just common the way this happens. But this must have hurt Philemon very deeply. Uh, You know, I found this true in my own life and in my own ministry that those who love the deepest tend to be hurt the deepest because they're willing to make themselves vulnerable. They're willing to open themselves up and give of themselves more than the average person would do. And when you do that, you can love more deeply, but it's going to hurt you more deeply when people take advantage of that. But on the flip side... Those who are afraid of being hurt deeply have great difficulty loving deeply. Those who are afraid to love deeply, those who are afraid of being hurt, they have problems loving deeply. That's just the way that it works. And whatever Onesimus stole from Philemon, or whatever he did before he ran away, the language of the letter indicates that it did greatly hurt Philemon. And... We don't know how long Onesimus had been gone. Uh, If Paul was in prison in Rome, and by the way, there's a debate among scholars and it's really not a huge issue. I just mention it because it could have implications to what we're talking about here. But there's a debate on whether or not Paul was in prison in Rome at the time or whether he was in prison at Ephesus at the time. And what this means to us is, if he was in prison in Rome, that's over a thousand miles from Colossae. But if he was in Ephesus, he's only 100 miles away. That could make a big difference in how long 
uh, Onesimus had been gone, whether it was days or weeks or months, we don't know. Uh, whether he went a thousand miles or only a hundred, I, I say only a hundred, I never had to walk a hundred miles somewhere in my life. But you understand the difference here. Um, but whether it was weeks or months, who knows? However long it was, this had to have been eating at Philemon. It had to be on his mind that his uh, runaway servant had stolen from him and nobody knows where he is. No doubt that was upsetting to him. Um, and we can't know from these 25 verses whether or not Philemon was struggling with bitterness and unforgiveness. I'm not saying he was. I can't say he was from the text. I don't know. But it certainly could have been. And the way that Paul writes this, it was certainly a possibility. And so we look at it in those terms. If he was bitter, if there was some unforgiveness, what would it have cost Philemon and what will it cost us um, we can know for sure what it would have cost him if he did in fact have bitterness and forgiveness in his heart toward Onesimus. So what is the high cost of unforgiveness? What are some things that it will cost us even as believers? I've only got two of the four this morning that I was going to preach, and y'all can all say thank you, Pastor Brandon. But I really want to dig into these two that we're going to talk about this morning. What is the high cost of unforgiveness. Number one, our relationships. It'll cost us our relationships. Look at verse one. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Epiphia and Acrippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. Paul not only lovingly addresses Philemon here, but also his wife, Aphia, and his son, Acrippus. Uh, Paul has wonderful things to say about them. He called them beloved. He called Acrippus a fellow soldier in Christ. And so Philemon's family seems to be pretty well put together. I mean, he, he seems to have been a very loving and compassionate uh, Christian father and husband. And it seems to show in his family. And so they seem to share a great relationship in the Lord and with each other. And, but I'll say this, and you need to listen when I say this. All of that goes away if you're harboring unforgiveness and bitterness in, in your life and in your heart. All of those good relationships, it's not that the relationships completely dissolve, but they'll be forever changed and you may not even realize it. You may not even recognize the effect that it's having on you and also the ones that are around you. Um, bitterness in the heart can change heaven on earth to hell on earth in a very short period of time. It'll change the very makeup of who we are. Now remember that Paul is addressing the Philemon and family that he knows apart from any possible unforgiveness or bitterness. Now some might say, but Philemon's beef would have been with Onesimus and not his family, but you need to get this and get this well. You cannot contain or confine unforgiveness and bitterness within that one relationship of the person that's harmed you and hurt you. You cannot do it. Now, Satan will make you think you can do that. It sounds great on paper, but it's not true. You cannot confine it to that one relationship. It never works like that. Unforgiveness, 
uh, will negatively affect every relationship in your life. And I'm not going to turn here for sake of time, but this would be good to mark this down. Listen as I read it, mark it down and go look at it in your own time. But Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15, it says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Now this is not talking about the loss of salvation. That's impossible for a true child of God. And I'm going to get into that in more detail in point number two. So just kind of put a pin in that. Uh, But I want you to see is where it talks about uh, the root of bitterness that springs up in you, and thereby many be defiled. In other words, once again, you can't contain it. It's going to defile and affect others around you. And to think that you can't is just wrong. And in fact, uh, when you go back and look at Hebrews 12, the context of what I just read, if you go on to verse 16, it ties it back to Esau. Well, what happened to Esau? Jacob deceived their father and stole the birthright, and Esau was so angry that he made a vow that he was going to kill his brother. And he carried that burden for decades, and to me, I think one of the most beautiful scenes in the Old Testament is when those brothers are reconciled. And, but yet Esau carried that. It dominated his thinking, and that is exactly what will happen if you allow a root of, of unforgiveness and bitterness to spring up. You know, what's interesting is I feel like we choose unforgiveness, but bitterness chooses us. Unforgiveness is the door by which bitterness makes its way in. And uh, that root of bitterness, it kind of reminds me of a kudzu vine in West, and they're going to know what I'm talking about here. But um, Alabama never had kudzu. It's not a native plant. It's not a native species in the South. But a lot of the soldiers, when they went to Vietnam, they saw kudzu and how good it was at preventing erosion. And they thought, well, you know, when the war was over, some of them had the idea to bring it back to America, and that way you can plant kudzu, and when the big rains come, it'll keep your land, your soil from eroding. The problem was they couldn't control it. And after a while, it took over, and you can ride through the south, and there's entire you know, thousands of tracts of acres in certain points where you can't even see a tree or a ple- It's nothing but kudzu. Everything's coated in it. And it kills everything it touches because it just soaks the nutrients out of the soil. It's almost like a parasite the way it operates. And that's like that root of bitterness. Uh, you can't control it. Once it starts, it, you, I mean, you're at its mercy. And so that's why we have to be so cautious about this. Now, I'm fixing to get personal for a minute. Because as I mentioned, this is, not an, this is not an abstract concept to me. I have dealt with this on two specific occasions in my life that I'll be honest, totaled probably about four years altogether. And I'm embarrassed to say that, but it's just true. And I, I didn't even realize uh, how it was affecting me. Um, there was a person in my life, and you know, as I, I was kind of thinking about this and pondering about this, I, I really debated on whether or not to tell you who this person is. And there's no way that I can tell you the whole story and give it justice without telling you that that person was my dad. And, you know, I love my dad. I mean, I really do more than anything. I I love him. And, you know, 
Our relationship has always been fairly rocky. Um, but we're, we're as good now as we have ever been. There's no, there's no animosity. There's no problems. But that wasn't always the case. Um, there was two, I can think of two major occasions in, in my life that he really deeply hurt me. And the first time was in high school. And what's, one of the biggest regrets that I ever have is letting it control me to the point that it did. Um, you can go back to my high school yearbook at the Christian school that I went to. I got saved when I was, it, it was a summer right before my freshman year of high school. I was 14. And so the first two years of high school, freshman and sophomore, I mean, you can look at my picture in the yearbook and you can just see the joy of the Lord just emanating from me. I've just got a big smile. You can just tell. But uh, the hurt that I'm talking about came uh, during the last two years of high school, my junior and senior year. You can look at those pictures in my junior and senior year and I look like, I mean, I hate to say that, I look like a serial killer. I look, you couldn't get me to smile. You could just see the bitterness. You could just see the anger just coming from, I mean, I'm just, I don't even want to be there. I'm angry that they're taking a picture of me right now. And so you can see that. It just, it just sucked the joy of the Lord out of my life. And I'm sure during that time I couldn't have been that great of a testimony. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't have been a shining light as far as the joy of the Lord goes. And I would have had a hard time convincing somebody else that they ought to want what I had. Because it had that much of an effect on me. Now eventually I did manage to give that to the Lord and I asked forgiveness for that. And, and it's not that He changed or... Our relationship changed that much per se, but I was changed. And so it made that, it was like a, the dark clouds lifted and a weight was lifted from me and I got my joy back and I began to see things in the Scripture again. And you know, it's not that anybody can ever lose their salvation, but they can sure have their fellowship with God affected by those things. Not only the exterior sin, I'm talking about the interior things. I Listen, I never stopped going to church. I never stopped doing the Christian things. But man, I was miserable on the inside. I was miserable. Um, but I'll say this, years later, uh, even after uh, I got married, uh, he did something that really hurt me again. And, you know, there's no need to get into details about all that. But the effect that that had is we didn't speak to each other for almost three years. Uh, we, we didn't even see each other on the holiday. It was that bad. And... You know, I, I kind of took solace in the fact that I felt like it was his fault, and I, I you know, but that really, it really doesn't matter. Um, and I was resolved in those things. And you know, here's the thing: I did not realize at the time how much it affected me. It, it affected me in the minute I'm pastoring at this time. It affected me in the ministry. It affected me at home. It affected my joy. It affected the way that I treated Leah and the kids. And I'm ashamed for that, but I didn't see it at the time. That's what happens when you turn toward darkness. You can't see where you're going. And, you know, this recently got brought to my attention. But, um, you know, my kids asked me this past week, or maybe it was two weeks ago, but they asked me, you know, what's the, what's the harshest, meanest thing that you've ever said in the pulpit? And I immediately remembered what it was. But what I did not remember until this week when I was studying is that it happened during that two, year, uh, two or three year period when we were at odds with each other. And I'm so ashamed of this now. Like I said, y'all just be glad y'all didn't get that, Brandon. 
But just to, I had all this going on. By the way, 2017, me and Wes were talking about this. 2017, I went through a horrible depression. It was demonic to the core. And for about, and what's so strange is, everything in life at that time was about the best it had ever been. I had gotten a position, I had my own radio show on FM, on the gospel station. The finances were good. The church and ministry were doing good. Uh, our marriage was... I mean, everything seemed to be on the up and up, and yet I'm struggling with this depression. It's real. And for me, you know, I never sought doctors or medication. I'm not necessarily knocking that, but for me, it was demonic. And, you know, I asked the Lord... Uh, I mean, it was so bad, if I'm just being real. It was so bad. There were times where uh, in our master bedroom, we had a, a sliding closet. And we had, obviously, clothes hanging, but we had some clothes that were folded in the floor. And I would slide that door open, and I would stick my head into the closet. I would wrap my head in the clothes and just scream. And I would ask God, why are you giving Satan so much access to my mind? But looking back, I realized that the the rift between me and Dad probably had more to do with that than anything else that I was going through. And it, it had just... Uh, just like we read in Hebrews, it had kind of shut the grace of God off in my life. It affected even the way that I study the Bible and what I could get out of the Bible. But it was during that time that I made the meanest, harshest statement I think I probably ever made in the pulpit. So I've already got all this on me. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to preach and I'm trying to do what I'm supposed to do. And there was a young man who was like a son to me. He, he grew up in our youth group. He came from a broken home and he just kind of took to me, and I, I mentored him. And at this time, he had kind of got a little older, and he had gotten out of church, and he wasn't living right. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to do and kind of avoiding me and everything. That really bothered me. And this one day, he decides to show up back at church, and for some reason, probably because of the pastor, our attendance and our Sunday school had just done a nosedive for no real reason. I don't, you know, like I said, I'd been the pastor. And the first thing that this young man says when he walks in the door is he says, where is everybody at? In other words, where is all the people that used to go to church and tell me that I should be in church? And son, that lit me on fire. <laughs> I mean, I was boiling. I'm getting hot talking about it. Anyway, I get in, we get 11 o'clock service and I'm preaching. And I'll be honest, I don't know whether it was anywhere in the text or not, but it came out. And I, I, we were talking about faithfulness. I'm sure it had something to do with that. And I said, yeah, talking about the importance of faithfulness. I said, yeah, that's like, and I, I said his name out loud. I said, it's like, you know, he's back at church for the first time in two years. And he's wondering where everybody else is at. I said, I'll tell you where they're at. I said, they were in the bed this morning because they were too sorry to get up and get to Sunday school. That's the, uh, I, I said some other things, but I won't go that far. But it was during that time where I'm dealing with this unforgiveness and bitterness. You may hear me say that. You're, you may be surprised that I said something. Like, I hope you're surprised. Because you've not, I've, I don't think you've seen that. I don't, I don't think I've done that since I've been here. And so, uh, but yeah, that's, that's what it was. It, it was that bitterness and unforgiveness that I couldn't control. That I, I thought I had it locked in a tight place where it wouldn't affect anybody. But you can't do that. I use a pulpit like a Gatlin gun, and I'm ashamed of that. And uh, I've had to ask God to forgive me of that. And you say, well, whatever happened, you know, between uh, you and your dad? Well, here's what happened. I went to uh, 
meeting somewhere and there's a preacher, and I'll be honest, I can't remember who the preacher was. I can't even remember what the sermon was about. It had to have been about forgiveness. But the one thing that I remember that I just, just wrecked me is he, he was talking about like how to forgive. And, and one of the things he said, and we'll get into this you know, in more depth in the coming weeks, but I want to mention this now. He mentioned that one of the biggest problems when we have bitterness and unforgiveness against somebody else is we, we fail to see any good in the person that they've ever done. And that is so true. And I got to thinking about, man, I, all I ever see is the bad. And he challenged us. And he had no idea what I was going through. But he said, if you're struggling, he said, what you need to do is you need to go home and you need to write a letter to that person. He said, you may not even ever have to give it to them. Just write it to them as if you're going to give it to them. And he said, don't say one bad thing. Don't say one negative thing about anything they've ever done to hurt you, harm you, whatever. I, w- I want you to write the letter and I want you to thank them for every possible thing that they've ever done good in your life or every good quality that you've seen in them. And I went home and I did that. It changed my life. And I, I wrote a letter to Dad and I, I got to think about all the good things he had done. And he was a good dad. He made a lot of mistakes. But, um, you know, he never brought any kind of drugs or alcohol in the house ever. He was never physically abusive in any kind of way. He was never negative. Um, he always supported me and Brooke. I mean, if we had a ball game or something, he was going to be there. And, uh, you know, he, he paid to send me to Christian school when he didn't have to. And, uh, man, the more I wrote, the more I cried, and the more I realized, you know, that what I did have to be thankful for and how wrong I had been. And I ended up, I, I did send that letter. And I didn't necessarily get the response that I wanted, but it didn't matter because I was already free. When I put that envelope in the mailbox that day, when I shut that mailbox, my heart was open and it was over with. And, um, and so it's, we always like to rest in the thought that it's the other person's fault. And there's no doubt, listen, I'm not demeaning your hurt. I'm not demeaning my hurt. But unforgiveness is never the other person's fault. Never. And... Uh, so I didn't, I didn't realize what it had done to me. But he mentions, he mentions, Paul mentions Philemon's family structure here, and the unity and the love that we see in this family. That goes away if you allow unforgiveness into your heart and into your home. And uh, I'm, I'm ashamed for how it affected me. Um, you know, and I think about one thing that we think a lot about. I think more so now that we're in Utah and it's a different place and we're still learning the culture. We're not... In Alabama, we're not with what we know. I think about the kids leaving a lot, like when they grow up. And, uh, you know, I have friends of mine that's a little bit older than me, and they're kind of a chapter or two ahead in life, and they've all told me the same thing. And one of the most painful things they've ever had to endure was watching their kids leave. And it's, it's a happy sad, you know, whether it's marriage or a job or college or whatever. And I just, in that moment, I don't want to ever have to look back like I do with my dad. I don't want to look back and realize how many memories we could have had or how many, how many things were tainted by my attitude or the things that I allowed in my heart and in my home and as in that moment as they're leaving, have more sadness than happiness. I don't want to do that. I don't want to get to the end of my life and realize that either. I don't want to be bound by that. And we're as susceptible as anybody. Um, unforgiveness is a cancer to your relationship. You can't confine it, you can't control it, and it comes with a high cost. It costs all relationships. 
And I think that's one of the reasons that Paul may, he might just be reminding Philemon of these things for that very reason. But number two, look, it's already, it's already lunchtime, and I'm just now at number two. And so, yeah, I was thinking of y'all when I, when I kept it at two this morning. But I, I'll get through this last one, we'll be done. It'll, it'll cost us our relationships. But number two, it'll cost us our rejoicing in the Lord. Look at number three. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, every time that in the New Testament, when Paul uses the term grace and peace, it's always in that order. It's always grace and then peace, and it has to be. I love what one writer said. Um, He said that grace is the means of salvation. Peace is the result of salvation. And you cannot have true peace apart from the grace of God. Isaiah 57 says that there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. And you know if that's true of a wicked person, it's every bit as true of a saved person who's harboring unforgiveness and bitterness in their heart because they've robbed themselves of the peace of being saved and the peace of God. Um... Once again, I go back to what we mentioned in Hebrews 12, verses 14 and 15. It says, Follow peace with all men, and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Now, this term fail here, it means to lack. It's not talking about a loss of salvation, but you do understand that somebody could have partaken of the saving grace of God. They're a child of God. They can never lose their salvation. And yet, they can cut off the valve of the sustaining and refreshing daily grace of God in your life. And if you think about, you know, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit within the believer is like rivers of flowing water. But what happens when you stop up water? It gets still and stagnant, doesn't it? It's a breeding ground for all kind of bacteria and everything else. And that's what happens in our hearts Uh, when we, uh, for lack of a better term, put a kink in the hose of God's grace. Um, This is what it means when Jesus said, But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you of your trespasses. That's Matthew 6 and verse 15. Now that doesn't mean you lose your salvation. We can't stop being a child of God. He's our Father. The implication is not that He doesn't forgive us in a legal salvific sense, but that He doesn't cleanse us uh, from the consequences and the the guilt and the bondage and the shame of that sin. Um, This isn't talking about that. In other words, unforgiveness will greatly impact our fellowship with God, our peace, our joy, our fellowship. And if you don't think that unforgiveness comes with a high price tag, try going through this life and all of its trials without the grace, the peace, and the joy of the Lord. You try that one on for size. At some point, you should be asking yourself, if you're dealing with these things, you should ask yourself, is it really worth it? Is it worth the high cost of this? If you've been... Now, this this is very important. I want you to hear this. I'm almost done. If you've been struggling for any length of time with a lack of joy in the Lord, direction, guidance, etc., it may be, it's not guaranteed, but it may be 
because you have locked something deep inside the dungeon of your heart that has been festering and decaying in secret. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11, man, this is so important. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11 tells us that if we don't forgive, that Satan can get an advantage over us. When it talks about his devices, it's talking in the context about unforgiveness, opening the door to Satan. What a, what a warning. What a scary result of unforgiveness. You're, and by the way, your unforgiveness isn't even harming that person. It's harming you. We're going to get into this later, but I just want to allude to this now. Give us a springboard for the coming weeks. Did you know that in ancient Rome, one of the cruelest punishments that they ever devised, and the Romans were really good at that. We know that from the crucifixion. But one of the, to me, one of the craziest punishments they ever come up with was how to punish murderers. Their capital punishment for killers. And what they would do is if somebody murdered another person, and they could prove it beyond any shadow of a doubt, they would take the dead body of the victim, and they would tie that dead body to their murderer. They would tie him wrist to wrist, ankle to ankle, waist to waist, and head to head. And they would make them walk around with that decaying body on their back. And nobody could take it off or help that murderer on pain of death. And day after day, that body began to decay. I don't have to go into detail. Y'all know what happens. And what would happen is, eventually, that body would get so decayed that that bacteria and whatever is involved with that would seep into the skin of the murderer and it would make them die an excruciating death. And in that way, it was an eye for an eye in the sense that their victim became their murderer. But man, what a picture of unforgiveness. You think you're doing harm to that person, but you're carrying them around on your back every day and it's destroying you on the inside. (laughs) What a burden, what a weight. What you need to do is ask the Lord to cut it off. Lord, take it from me. Or don't even take it. Here, I give it. What What an illustration of what unforgiveness and bitterness does, carrying that around every single day, just decaying worse and worse every day, seeping into our inside. What's the solution? And I'm done. I think about what Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32 says. Let, I love that word let. It's like let go, release, just what we talked about. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be you kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. To me, that's one of the most powerful statements in all the Bible. Because the Apostle Paul says, I want you to forgive others for Christ's sake. Now, people use that term for Christ's sake as a kind of a blasphemous term. Well, for Christ's sake, but no, listen to the implication here. You say, well, the person that hurt me doesn't deserve my forgiveness. They probably don't. But you didn't deserve the forgiveness of Christ, and neither did I. But God commended His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So He... He doesn't say forgive them because they deserve it or forgive because you want to. He said forgive for Christ's sake. Oh my goodness, what leverage for the child. When we think about what He did for us on the cross and all He endured for us, how could we not forgive for Him? We're never more like God than when we forgive the unforgivable. 
That's why we're commanded to forgive for Christ's sake and not theirs. And this is essentially what Paul is asking Philemon to do. The cost of unforgiveness is too high. It costs our relationships. It costs our rejoicing in Christ. And there's several more we're going to get to in the coming weeks. And, uh, you know, I know you're probably asking, well, how, how do I do that? I mean, how do I really do that? Well, we're going to break that down because I don't want to tell you what to do without showing you from the Scriptures how to do it. you got questions, hey, we can talk about it. If you don't feel like you can wait for what we're, 